Today's passage is 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. You can find that on page 958 in the Pew Bible. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be fractions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one comes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. If I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the new covenant in my body. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we were judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give direction when I come. This morning, as we continue on in our study of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, I think it'll help you to have a Bible open in front of you uh, this morning. So my plan is to refer back to the the text uh, often. So if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you should find one under the chair in front of you. It's the dark blue one, uh, not the light blue one. Uh, If you remember back at the beginning of chapter 11 in verse 2, Paul commended the church at Corinth for the way they were following his instructions and maintaining the traditions that he had passed down to them. Uh, In verse 17, where our passage for this morning begins, though, we, we see Paul turn to matters which gave him very little cause to encourage the church. Uh, You see there that his concern uh, regards what happens when the church comes together. Uh, He says there in verse 17, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. He goes on then to describe what was happening in their church meetings. He says there in verse 18 that there was division instead of unity. Uh, There in verse 21, it seems that people were going ahead with their own meal, not not leaving enough food for latecomers. Uh, Some, it seems, were even getting so deep into the drink that they were getting drunk. Now, we don't know exactly for certain uh, what sort of scenario Paul is addressing, but but here's the most likely sort of situation based on what we know of sort of ancient dining practices. Uh, We know that most churches in those days were fairly small. 
they didn't have buildings like this one where they could gather, and so they would normally meet in the homes of wealthier members. Uh, you see sometimes in, in Paul's letters, he'll say, you know, greet the saints who meet in uh, so-and-so's home. Right? There were people who had space enough to accommodate dozens or scores of people, and so the church would meet in their homes, and they would meet on Sundays, uh, as we do. But back then, in a, in a pagan world, Sundays were just another work day. And so the church would have to meet in the evening after work, uh, perhaps even with the evening meal sort of before the main gathering. The church would gather, eat a meal together, uh, hear God's word, and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now that meant that poorer members of the church, laborers, servants, workmen, they would have to wait until their employers let them off before they could come to the gathering. They'd naturally be later to the, to the meeting than wealthier members who had a bit of leisure and could show up whenever they wanted to. And we also know ancient houses usually had two dining areas. There was a small sort of private room for entertaining VIP, and then there was an open courtyard where, where lots of people could eat. And so it seems like, sort of based on all those data points, what was probably happening at the church in Corinth was that the, the wealthier members of the church were arriving early. And they were sort of heading into the VIP area and partying. And so when the poorer members would finally show up after getting uh, off work, they'd be relegated to sort of eating in the courtyard. And they would be left to hope that there was some food left for them. That would explain there in verse 22 why, why Paul says that they were humiliating the poor. So it's understandable that Paul wants to correct this conduct. And to that end, he, he zeroes in on just how inappropriate their behavior is, especially in light of the meaning of the Lord's Supper that they were supposed to be celebrating. So this passage is really devoted to explaining the reason for the Lord's Supper and then applying it, its significance to the life of the church. And so what I'd like to do to that end is, is look at Paul's teaching along three lines. First, let's see what Paul tells us about what's happened in the past that we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. Uh, second, let's see what Paul tells us about what the Lord's Supper means for our, our practice as a church in the present. And then finally, we'll conclude by seeing what the Lord's Supper means for our future. So what's happened in the past, what it means for our present, and how it impacts our view of the future. So first, let's look at what happened in the past uh, there in verse 23, Paul refers back to things that he had taught them uh, in the few years in the early 50s AD when he lived amongst them in Corinth. So we think Paul lived there for probably about two and a half years establishing the church before moving on to Ephesus. He's writing the letter uh, of 1 Corinthians that we call 1 Corinthians uh, from Ephesus. Uh, and he reminds them of what he uh, had taught them there in verse 23. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. This is the tradition that they're failing to keep there in verse 17. Uh, he, he's sort of arguing or, or rebuking them for not keeping his commands. And this seems to be what he's talking about. Now he says there in verse 23 that he delivered to them back then uh, what he in, in fact had received directly from the Lord Jesus. There in verse 23, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Now, this is extraordinary because Paul is writing at least five, maybe as, as much as 10 years before the earliest account of Jesus's life was written. 
So the Gospel of Mark, we think, was probably written uh, around the early 60s AD. And so Paul is writing to the church at Corinth before any gospel accounts had been written. I don't imagine that Paul's got his Bible open, sort of turned to, to Mark chapter 14 and is going, all right, guys, here's what it says here. No, this is, this is Paul not summarizing what the gospel accounts said, but telling the Corinthians directly what he had received from Jesus. Either that means that Jesus directly revealed it to him, uh, though exactly how we're not told, or it means that he's referring to, to a well-known Christian account of the words that Jesus spoke, that this was so common that, in fact, everyone knew that Jesus had said this. But in any event, what we're reading here in verse 23 and following is a, a summary of what's called the Lord's Supper. And it's being written just 20 years after it took place. So Paul recalls for them here the events that took place on the night before Jesus' death. There in verse 23, he refers to it as the night when he was betrayed. If you remember, Jesus was turned over to his enemies by one of his followers, a man named Judas Iscariot. From that point, he was arrested, he was tried, tortured, and eventually put to death on the cross. But just before those events took place, Jesus celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples in the upper room of a house. And at that meal, right before his death, Jesus gave his disciples an illustration and he gave them some instructions. Paul summarizes that there at the end of verse 23 through verse 25. We read there, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so let's unpack uh, the words that Jesus says there that are being passed on to us by the Apostle Paul. Because the danger is that we're so familiar with those words, right? We I think we literally read them every Sunday that we're able to gather together. The danger is that because we're so familiar with these words, we'll, we'll miss the significance of them. We will, we will fail to let them have the impact uh, on us that they would have had on the, the original disciples. And so let me point out three things about what Paul tells us that Jesus said here that I think are important for us. And if you're a guy who's involved in the Thursday morning men's group, this is going to sound familiar. All right, I, I tip my hat to John Stott's The Cross of Christ for some of these thoughts. And by the, I'll let you know when I have better thoughts than John Stott about any passage. It hasn't happened yet. But three things I think we should pull out of Paul's words here. Uh, first, we see that the death of Jesus represents a new covenant. Uh, again, there in verse 25, you see Jesus takes the cup of wine. And he tells his disciples that this wine is a picture of his blood. And specifically, he tells them... It's the new covenant in his blood. Okay, well, what does that mean? When we talk about a covenant, we're talking about a pact, a, a solemn agreement between two parties that, that structures their relationship. So the Bible's full of covenants. In the book of Genesis, we see God make a covenant with Abraham. The Lord promises to give Abraham descendants and a land and to make Abraham a great blessing to all the nations. In the book of Exodus, we see God renew that covenant that he'd made with Abraham with Abraham's descendants at Mount Sinai. And 
the, the thing you have to know about covenants in order to make sense of what Jesus is saying here is that these covenants were usually established with blood. There was a bloody sacrifice that, that was used to sort of set the covenant in motion. So if you remember in Genesis 15, and again in Exodus 24, you see animals being sacrificed as part of the, the covenant initiation ceremony. In Exodus 24, we read that as part of that covenant ceremony, the, the people of Israel sacrificed oxen to the Lord and then collected the blood from the oxen. And then it tells us there in Exodus 24, verse 8, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So Moses is splattering the people of Israel with what he calls the blood of the covenant. Okay, you also need to know that these covenants that God made with the people of Israel, they were all broken. Not by God, but by the people of Israel themselves. They, they never really kept up their end of the arrangement, at least never for very long. They went after other gods. They failed to keep the Lord's words and commandments. And so these covenants were all broken. But God is completely faithful to his people. And he won't even allow their sin to get between uh, their relationship. And so God promised that one day he would make yet another covenant a new covenant. And this arrangement would be different from the old one. In this new covenant, God would give to his people everything they needed. He would do for them everything they couldn't do for themselves. And so I want to read to you from the words that the Lord spoke through the prophet Jeremiah. This is roughly 600 years before Jesus. And listen carefully to this promise of a new covenant because it sheds light on what Jesus is doing at the Last Supper. So we read there in Jeremiah uh, 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So God is promising his people a new and better covenant, one that, that the people can't break because God is actually going to give them a heart that wants to keep the covenant. It's a covenant that can't be broken because God will commit himself to forgiving their sins. And so with this great promise sort of hanging over God's people for 600 years, Jesus comes along. And on the night before his death, before his body is broken and his blood is shed on the cross, he holds up a cup of wine and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Right? Jesus is telling us the meaning of his death. He is shedding his blood in order to bring about the new covenant that God had promised through the prophet Jeremiah 600 years earlier. He is dying in order to secure for us 
all of the benefits of that arrangement. A new heart, a restored relationship to God, the forgiveness of sins. Right? Can you imagine the drama of that moment? Again, the, the danger is that it's so familiar to us that we just hear it as the sort of words of institution that we say every Sunday. But it's hard to think of a more extraordinary thing that Jesus could possibly say than to hold up a cup of wine and say, this represents my blood, which is the blood of the new covenant. He's saying, this promise is being fulfilled right now. My blood is about to be shed so that you can receive the forgiveness of sins. In fact, when Matthew, some years after Paul wrote to the Corinthians, got around to writing his account of Jesus' words at the Last Supper, he makes it clear that we're, we're in fact interpreting this correctly. Uh, we read there in Matthew 26, verse 28, that Jesus said, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' death is bringing about the new covenant and its promise that our sins will be forgiven. Uh, the second thing that we need to see from Jesus' words, as Paul passes them on here in 1 Corinthians 11, is just how important the death of Christ is to our faith. I'll just mention this briefly, but I think it's very important for our life together as a church. What is the heart of Christianity? What is its core? The thing that we're supposed to sort of center around when we get together. Different traditions might answer that question in various ways, in their practice, at least, if not in their creeds. So Eastern Orthodox churches tend to focus on Jesus' incarnation, the fact that the Son of God took on human flesh. Uh, Pentecostal churches tend to focus on the, the gifts of the Spirit and the, the miraculous healings. Uh, fundamentalists might emphasize the law of God and the need to, to conform and obey. Reformed folks might be tempted to sort of place an emphasis on God's sovereignty and make that the center of our life together. And all of those things are good, and none of them ought to be neglected. But it seems very significant that Jesus gave us only one thing that we should keep doing in a week in and week out, over and over, in order to remember him. And that remembrance, the Lord's Supper, speaks to us of his death. It tells us about the significance of his crucifixion. Jesus wanted to be remembered in his death because that's the center of our faith. That's the heart of Christianity. I remember I was working at a church in the city, and I was meeting up at the time with a college student helping him. He was, he was leading a, a chapter of a well-known Christian campus ministry at my alma mater, and when it came time in the spring to appoint student leadership for the following year, uh, he had been left off. Even though he'd been very involved, it seemed like he was an obvious choice to be in leadership. Uh, the ministry staff worker was an old friend of mine, and so I followed up with him to ask, you know, what, what happened? Why did this guy get left off? Is there something going on with him that would be helpful for me to know about uh, so I can sort of address it with his character or, or behavior? But they said, no, no, he's, he's great, but... We're just worried that he's, he's too cross-centered. And I thought, okay, that means I'm doing my job. But, but it turns out the, the regional leadership wanted to focus the campus group on community service and mercy. And so they were worried that this student would keep bringing everything back to the fact that Jesus had been crucified. Well, brothers and sisters, as a church, 
we should unashamedly focus on the death of Christ. Jesus has given us this weekly reminder, not of his incarnation, though praise God for his incarnation, right? Not, not of the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, not of his law, not even of his sovereignty, but Jesus has given us this reminder week in and week out of his death for us. We ought to center our life as a church around this forgiveness of sins that was bought by the blood of Christ. We need to focus on the death of Christ and its meaning and its significance in our lives. The Lord's Supper shows us that Jesus intended us to remember him in his death. I think the third thing that we see about Jesus' death here is that we each need to take hold of it personally. There in verse 24, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He tells them that his body is given for you. But that's not it. The disciples are not there as spectators. Right? He, he's not calling them to watch him eat and drink. But instead, Jesus calls on them to be involved in the process. Uh, certainly, they're not going to be the ones who give up their lives for the forgiveness of sins. It's Jesus' body that will be broken. His blood will be shed. But, but what are they called to do? They're called to eat, and to drink, to internalize the elements, to grab hold of their benefits personally. Right? The, the bread and the wine are right there, but the disciples have to actually eat it and drink it. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, that's a bit of a stretch. Maybe you're reading too much into the symbolism here. But remember what Jesus said back in John chapter 6. He says these strange words that, that must have been really confusing. We know they were confusing at the time from the way people reacted. But listen to what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we focus on the centrality of Jesus' death for the forgiveness of our sins, it's, it's on display before us, all that Christ did for us. And what remains is for us to take hold of it personally. And to be clear, the Heidelberg Catechism that we read earlier was really helpful on this. The way that we do that, the way that we take hold of the death of Christ and all of its benefits personally, is by faith. Right? Merely putting these elements in your mouth and digesting them uh, means nothing. Right? We say it all the time. This stuff came from the grocery store. Right? It's not magic. Instead, the way we profit spiritually from coming to the table is when we come in faith. That's how we receive the benefits of Jesus' death. He invites us to come to him and to find all that we need. Forgiveness, newness of life, a restored relationship with our creator. We come with empty hands in humble faith, in belief, in trust that his death is what we need in order to be right with God. We come turning our back on any other way of trying to be right with God and trusting that he's willing to have us as his people. The only way to receive the benefits of Jesus' body and blood is to grab hold of them and to eat them, as it were, by faith. But the good news, friends, is that's all you need. You don't have to get your life together first and then come to him. You don't have to get answers to every question you might have and then come to him. 
You, you don't have to obey for a certain period of time in order to show that God that you're serious and then come to him. Simply come to him now in faith. And friends, no one can do this for you. Your parents cannot do this for you. The church cannot do this for you. What matters is that you've put your trust in the Lord Jesus yourself. And so let me ask you whether you've done that. Have you ever come to Jesus in simple, humble faith, trusting the offering of his body and blood for the forgiveness of your sins? Friends, Jesus has been very kind to us in the gift of the Lord's Supper. He doesn't particularly need anything from this. It's a gift to us. Jesus knows that our faith is weak, that we tend to be distracted by the things we can see and feel and touch and taste. He knows that we need to be reminded and encouraged of these most true truths. And so he's given us this table as a way to remember the most important thing in the world, that Jesus died for sinners like us. Well, that's what's happened in the past. Let's turn now to see what Paul says about the implications of that truth for the way the church lives in the present. And what I'd like us to see is that the Lord's Supper, this celebration in the present of something that happened in the past, this supper creates a community. Remember what Paul told us about the Lord's table back in chapter 10. We read there, the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So as we each participate as individuals in the blessings of Christ's death by faith, as we grab hold of them and, and eat them in faith, we are actually made one body together along with everyone else who is participating in Christ by faith. We all eat of one bread. Here Paul's not so much focusing in on the fact that, that we use one loaf, right? This bread could have come from two different loaves that got cut up, right? That's not the important thing, right? We all eat of one bread in the sense that we're, we're all grabbing hold of the, the death of Christ. We're all grabbing hold of the exact same thing. And so we who are many individuals are now one body, that's why we sometimes call the Lord's Supper communion, because it's a way that we act out our community. It's a way that we live out our identity as brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? This is a family meal, and that's what makes the behavior of the Corinthians so troubling. Instead of dissolving their divisions, the Lord's Supper was actually creating and exacerbating them. Look there in verses 18 to 21, where Paul says this. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So you see the problem. In those days, in the pagan world, a dinner party was a place where you displayed the social hierarchy. You could tell your social status by where you were seated and how you were treated by your host. But when God's people gather to the, the table and, and eat the bread and drink the cup, 
It's an affirmation of our unity, of our equality at the foot of the cross. At the table, there is no rich, there is no poor, no good, no bad, only sinners saved by the sacrificial love of Christ. But it seems that the Corinthians were conducting themselves in such a way to actually accentuate their class differences. Paul says that he believes it. And there in verse 19, he says something surprising. He says that there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Right? Paul's being a little bit punchy here. He's saying, in essence, that there are distinctions and factions at the Lord's table. But it's not the ones that the Corinthians are observing. The, the distinction at the Lord's table is not between class and culture. The only division here is between those who understand the message of the cross and those who don't. There in verses 27 to 30, he unpacks it further. He says there's a distinction at the Lord's table, and it's between those who come and are spiritually nourished and those who come and only eat and drink judgment on themselves. Look there, starting in verse 27. Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. You see, Paul is warning them here. It seems that some, as he said, have become ill or even died under God's judgment because of their behavior at the Lord's table. Instead of coming and experiencing the benefits of communion, they were actually bringing God's judgment on themselves. Now, Paul says there in verse 32 that the point of this judgment was not to destroy them, but rather to correct their behavior, to bring them back in line with the truths of the gospel, right? the, for, for the purpose of preventing them from experiencing condemnation along with the world. So how did Paul want the Corinthians to live in light of all that? Well, he, he tells us there in verse 28, he says, examine yourself and only then come and eat and drink. There in verse 31, he talks about judging ourselves truly, having an accurate sense of yourself so that the Lord won't have to judge you. The idea is that when we come to the table, it is a wonderful gift. It is an incredible encouragement to our faith. But it's not a joke, and it's not something to be taken lightly. And so Paul says we should examine ourselves first. That's why we have a, a time of, of reflection and prayer and confession built into our celebration of the Lord's Supper. But what should we be looking for? When we examine ourselves, what should be our concern? Well, look at what Paul says there in verse 27. He says not to come in an unworthy manner. I think this causes a lot of Christians anxiety because it makes it seem like there's a certain bar of worthiness that I need to satisfy before I can safely come to the Lord's table. And so it feels like there's this tension, right? I want to come to the table and celebrate the, the love of Christ shown in dying for unworthy people like me, but I can't quite muster the sense of worthiness I need to come to the table and experience that love. And so some people examine themselves, conclude that it's been a bad week, conclude that I've sinned too much, and decide, you know, I should probably just sit this round out just to be safe. 
But brothers and sisters, I don't think that's what Paul is trying to encourage at all. After all, feeling inferior, feeling unworthy of God's love, feeling a sense of your sin, that's a key requirement for coming to the table. That's how you experience God's love. Instead, there in verse 29, he mentions discerning the body. He says, don't eat without discerning the body. And I think that's key to understanding his meaning here. What does it mean to discern the body? Well, we know that the the church is the body of Christ. right? Just in a a few verses in chapter 12, Paul's going to launch into an extended discussion of that word picture. And so it seems that the particular sin that Paul is calling out is a sin against the church family. It's not that the church doesn't understand that Jesus died for their sins. It's that they don't seem to understand that the death of Jesus makes them into one body, that it unites them and makes them equal. The Lord's Supper is, is meant to give us a regular prompt towards good and proper relationships within the church family. It's meant to prompt us towards reconciliation with each other. Right? And so before you come to the table, examine yourself particularly your relationships and your attitudes towards other people in the church. Right? If you despise your brother or sister, if you look down on them or, or hate them in your heart, if you've mistreated someone, if you've acted as if you know, they're not worthy of your love, well, confess that. Seek forgiveness as it's needed. Seek reconciliation as it's available. If there's someone that you don't like in the church, someone that annoys you, if someone has mistreated you or or let you down or disappointed you, forgive them from your heart because Christ has shed his blood for both of you. Right? If Jesus doesn't hold his your brother's sin against them, then neither can you. You see, the Lord's Supper is a, a beautiful gift to us as a church because we're a family. Right? That, that's, that flows from the death of Christ. We are one body, whether you feel like it or not. Nothing we do makes it more or less so. Jesus died to make us one body. But it doesn't always feel like it, does it? We have different personalities. We have different backgrounds, different expectations from a church. And unless we just ignore one another and stay at a safe distance tension will inevitably arise. And so here Jesus, again in his kindness, knowing our frailties, knowing how life takes a chunk out of you every week, knowing how we will often unwittingly sin against one another, Jesus has given us this table not just to remember his death, but he's given us this table so that we can feel like a family, and so that we can live as a family. Right? A meal is a sign of fellowship and friendship. You want to share a meal with someone if you enjoy their company and want them to be around. And so it's significant that Jesus invites you to come to him and share a meal. That gives you a picture of Christ's posture and attitude towards you. He looks at you as someone he wants to break bread with. But it's also significant that he doesn't invite you alone, but he invites all of your brothers and sisters and that we come together to commune with him and to commune with one another. When we come, Jesus fellowships with us, and we fellowship with one another. And that brings us to the final thing for us to consider this morning, and that is 
the future. What is it that the, the Lord's Supper tells us about the future? I think one of the difficulties of living the Christian life is that, is that our daily grind, the sort of concerns and pressures and entertainments of the present moment, feel disproportionately large and significant. It can feel like the truths on display here at the Lord's Supper are, are, are distant from where we actually live. But here again, the Lord has given us a way to receive a fresh perspective. We've seen how Jesus' death in the past shapes our life in the present. We receive forgiveness of sins. We're united in one body. But there's also a hint in this passage that the Lord's Supper is meant to point us to the future. It helps us to imagine not just the world that we're living in now, but a world that's been made new, the world that Jesus will one day bring about. Look there what Paul says in verse 26. He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, the Lord's Supper is a temporary institution. It's not meant to be permanent. Jesus is going to come back. And when he does, the Bible tells us there is going to be a dinner party for the ages. The prophet Isaiah, centuries before Jesus arrived, saw a, a vision of a day when the Messiah would come and host a great feast for all the peoples. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, we read this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Friends, the Lord's Supper is meant to be a foretaste of this end time feast. It's meant to whet your appetite for that day when Jesus will return and he will eat and drink with his people. The food there Isaiah says, will be rich. The wine will be aged and well-refined. And we will eat with him there, secure in the knowledge that death and sin and shame are no more, that there's, there's nothing that can harm us. And best of all, Jesus himself will be present. The waiting will be over, and the fulfillment will have come. Uh, the book of Revelation gives us another sort of picture of this great feast. And here it's, it's communicated to us as the world's greatest wedding celebration. Here it is Jesus, the bridegroom, marrying his bride, the church. This is the very end of the Bible, the consummation of all history. And everyone who comes to Christ in faith is going to be at that party. In Revelation 19, we read this, starting in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. 
Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So brothers and sisters, as we come to the table, allow it to cast your eyes back to what happened in the past when the Lord Jesus died to inaugurate the new covenant in his blood so that we could be forgiven. Allow it to to reshape the way you think about your present, particularly your relationships in the church with your brothers and sisters. And, and let it cause you to cast your eyes to that, that greater day that's coming. The only thing better than the Lord's Supper, the only thing better than being a church family communing by faith with our Savior, and that is the day when we'll no longer need these visible reminders of his love. Because our faith won't need crutches and prompts anymore because we will finally be with him together and we will see him face to face. Until then, let's pray and let's celebrate together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we delight in your great love for us that you would promise a new covenant, that you would send your beloved son to die for us so that we could be forgiven and made your people. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us to live in light of the truth uh, that we are a church family. We, we pray for anyone here who has not taken hold of Christ's sacrifice by faith, and we pray, Spirit, that you would give them the faith that they need. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would uh, come back quickly. We rejoice in your sacrificial love, and we long to see you face to face. And so it's in your name that we pray. Amen.